by the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. God is at work. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to jump into our message for today, and this is our second message on uh, our mission statement, how the how of discipleship, giving out God's mission. And so we're, we're working through in this series, our mission statement. Let's see if this is going to work. It doesn't. So if someone up there can hit it and knock it forward for me, that would be great. Wow. Here we go. Okay. All right. So this is our, our new mission statement here. It is New Life Philly makes disciples of all nations by equipping every member. Someone say equipping. Serving in ministry, connecting in community, and engaging our neighbors. Last week, we started on this idea of equipping, and we're going to go in that, go into that one more time today. Here we go. So Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, So Christ gave, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So I said last week that the first job in many ways of a pastor or a ministry leader is not to do all the work of ministry, but to equip the people of God to do the work of ministry. And so last week we we jumped into this idea of equipping and we looked at uh, equipping in terms of uh, uh, going into contemplative spirituality. And today we're going to look at a second part. Again, last week was equipping 101. This is also equipping 101. You don't get to skip one or the other. This is equipping 101 formed by God's word. Amen. It, 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 it can be easy as a pastor or leader to feel like, okay, we've got to We've got to do this. We've got to teach everybody in just such a particular way that everybody understands everything exactly the same way all the time. How many of you know that will never work? It doesn't work between a husband and wife. It doesn't work in any group of people. It doesn't even work with yourself over the course of about a week or two. You don't agree with your own self. So what I'm looking at is this. You know, there's an old saying that says, if you give a man a fish... You feed him for a day, right? But if you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. What we want to do here in equipping at New Life Church is give you more and more tools yourself. And in this message, I'm going to talk about rightly dividing the word of truth, how we can understand God's word better. Last week, we looked at contemplative spirituality that helps us to experience God, to understand that he is indeed with us, and that helps to form us. God does his surgical maneuvers from the inside out. And today, we're going to talk about the critical, of imp- the critical importance of understanding God's word. So let's stand together. And today, we're going to look at several scriptures together. Uh, I think that there's four in all that we'll look at. The first three are up on the board right now. And let's read God's word 
together and we'll read the name of the scripture as well. So let's just start. Romans 10, 16 through 17. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions and attitudes of the heart. Psalm 119.105 Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. Now we're going to stick on this one a little bit. I'm going to unpack 2 Timothy 2.15 a little bit as we walk through this message today. But let's read that together. 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Let me pray. Father, in the coming moments, I pray that you would just be with us as we unpack your word. Lord God, help us to grow in our ability to correctly and rightly handle your word and understand and know you better. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to do four things today uh, as we look at four keys to correctly understanding God's word. The first thing is we want to understand what scripture actually is. Sometimes I think people think it's just God dropped his word out of the sky. Here it is. And you've all heard this before. God said it. I believe it. And Somebody got to help me here. Okay. And that settles it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. As if scripture just came out of heaven and that that's it. There's no work to do to understand it. But even in first in second Timothy two, he says, you've got to work at this thing so that you can correctly handle the word. And the first thing is understanding what scripture actually is. How many people have ever heard this description? The Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. Have you heard that before? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, I've heard that many times. I've used that many times. I've shared that with people many times. But as I look at that, I have to say, yeah, it's that. But it's so much more than that. In fact, I w- if someone asked me what is the Bible, I would not say it's an instruction book to tell you what the next thing to do is. That's not what I would say at all. That's way too narrow. Does it give instruction? Yes. But it's so much more than that. At its core, the Bible is a collection of 66 books supervised by God, held together by God. Uh, He inspired authors to write these books and they reveal to us the person of Jesus Christ, the nature of our God and the one who is running after you and me. Amen. Perhaps the greatest sermon that there ever was. And I've mentioned this a few times before, but 
would be that sermon that Jesus gave as he walked with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected from the dead. As Jesus walks with them for hours, Luke summarizes Jesus' sermon or teaching this way. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. Concerning himself. Oh, I would have loved to be there for that, that, that sermon. But the one thing that this verse shows us, and we see it throughout Scripture, not just here, but is that all of Scripture points us to the person of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. In other words, if you're reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you think all this is about is what things are clean and what things are unclean and oh gosh, what am I going to do with all that? Understand this, it is also and primarily teaching you about Jesus. The prophets aren't just giving us information about some people or some country that was going to be judged or blessed years and years ago. They are teaching us about the person of Jesus. The wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, they're not just giving us wise sayings or trying to stir us up emotionally. They're teaching us about Jesus. And even the historical narratives in scripture, they're recounting the history of Israel and God's people. It's not just laying out a historical account of what happened. Those stories are rooted and grounded in the history of God's people. And they're shaped and crafted in order to point us to Jesus Christ. This is what the scripture is. So I want you to get this right here. This is what we miss with a flat reading of scripture. It's just an instruction book. It's telling me what to do next. It's not just basic instructions before leaving earth, but God's self-revelation creatively designed to invite you and to invite me into an intimate, life-transforming, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The word of God is powerful. It is powerful and it is designed to bring you into that relationship with Jesus. In other words, everything that God has done in revealing himself to us in the word, he did to reveal Jesus to you. He did to reveal Jesus to me. It's not simply what should I do next, but as you behold the glory of, of the one and only unique son of the living God, he transforms your heart and life through Jesus Christ. Now, the second piece here, not only do we need to understand what scripturally, scripture actually is, but then secondly, understanding the authors and the audience. Now, I'm going to need your help with this. This is a really important thing if you're going to understand scripture well. So I want you to repeat something after me. First of all, repeat after me. The Bible was not written to you. The Bible was not written to you. And then repeat this. But the Bible was written for you. The Bible was written for you. 
What do I mean by that? The Bible was not written to you. It was written to people thousands of years ago. The New Testament, 2,000 years old. The, the Old Testament was written uh, 3,500 years ago. And over a course of about a 1,000 years, the Old Testament was put together. It was a people from wildly different cultures, wildly different languages, different understandings of everything. And so we need to understand it wasn't written to me, but it was written for me. It was written for me. Here's what I mean by that. The target audience of Moses or David or Paul or Peter was not a 21st century person living in uh, America who is technologically savvy. That's some of you, but not all of you today in a postmodern culture in a major city on the northeastern seaboard of the United States. That, that, that was not the target audience. The Old Testament written thousands of years ago, 3,500 to 2,500 years ago, was written to people who understood ancient Near Eastern culture and practices, had an ancient Near Eastern worldview and cosmology. They knew nothing of our current world as it is. The New Testament was written in six or seven decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And it was written to various communities in the Roman Empire who were ruled by the Emperor Caesar, who was keeping many different people groups under oppression. That is when, where, and how it was written. And so how does this affect how we understand Scripture? The Bible includes both timeless truths that are through history and culture. And this truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need to know it. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. The Bible includes timeless truths, but it also includes specific instructions and guides that are to specific peoples, specific cultures, specific communities that can't be applied in every situation. And the, the issue that we often have in rightly dividing the word of Scripture is telling which one is which. Anybody ever been flummoxed by that? I know flummoxed is a big word. Amen. I've been flummoxed many times. But let me give you an example of, of what I mean by that. Here we go. First Corinthians Four, uh, 11, 4 and 5. I, I know many people here, this is your favorite scripture. Here it goes. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Priscilla, brother? <laughs> You got to go home with that woman, bro. <laughs> there's a lot of different interpretations of these verses. And there's a lot of different interpretations right here in this room. But here's what I know. I've not come across anyone at New Life who insists that if Karen leads worship or if someone prays from the pulpit or even if they were to prophesy that they have to have a covering over their head. We, that's what the scripture says. 
It's, it's pretty plain. Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it isn't going to work for this particular case. There's something else going on here. So even though we can see it clearly, and even though we are a people who believe in the scriptures, we have some knowledge that there's something particular going on here dealing with the culture, and we don't apply it the same way that they did 2,000 years ago. Here's a later on in that chapter, Paul writes this. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. That would lead you to believe in many ways if a woman has short hair or if she uh, has shaved her head, then this is a sinful type of thing. But what what does Paul mean by the very nature of things? Doesn't the very nature of things tell you this? I would argue here that when he talks about the very nature of things, he's not talking about the created order and how God made things in the beginning, the what we would call nature. What he's talking about is a cultural practice and belief that was uh, a, that was at work in the Roman Empire in his day as he was writing these scriptures. In that day, for a woman to have short hair was considered a terrible thing. For a woman to have her head uncovered in a place where there were men was a sign that she is available to the men who are in that room. It's not the same here today. Amen? It's not the same here today. So our task in the Bible is going to be over and over again to be able to grow in our ability to discern from this word that was written for us, but not to us, how we apply it in our lives, in our culture, in our situation. And so that leads me to the next point here, understanding how to read scripture in the light of tradition. This is absolutely critical for us. Understanding how to interpret scripture in the light of tradition. We've got 2,000 years now of Christian history, and there's a lot of great teaching over the course of that time. There are great creeds and great confessions, and they don't always, by the way, agree with one another from different parts of the body of Christ, but there is a great heritage of learning and studying and understanding of the Word of God. But we've got to decide how we come to the Scripture in light of the tradition. And, and the first way is one that I just want to push to the side real quick, reading Scripture and ignoring tradition. If we simply do that, it doesn't matter what anyone else thought before us. We're just going to come to it fresh. You can throw all that out. That is a stance of arrogance. Amen. Because people have labored in the word. People have studied this word. And, and the church as a whole has worked to rightly divide the word of truth. So we're going to just rule that one out for a second. Reading scripture and ignoring tradition. But the, the next two are this. Reading scripture through the tradition. And reading scripture with the tradition. And th those two are different. Let me explain it. 
If we're reading scripture through the tradition, that means that we may be taking our traditions and documents and anything that we're going to read in the scripture, it first has to go through uh, the litmus test of our tradition, of our confession, of our understanding. And then we have to understand the scripture in light of our tradition. Amen. Does everyone get what I'm talking about here? I know this is a teaching. Uh, this is more of a, a, a teaching message than a preaching message, but this is part of equipping. Amen. If we're going to be equipped, we've got to learn some things. And so when we do that, what we do, uh, maybe not on purpose, but when we read the scripture through our tradition, we are actually putting our tradition above the scripture. Because our tradition says this, and we're going to do whatever we can to the scripture to make it fit our tradition, our way. Brothers and sisters, I've seen that done over and over again, and it is a major issue. Because the scripture must rule over our tradition. It's interesting that I, I often see that. And, and I love Reformed theology. That is, that is what I, I cling to and love. But I've seen it done too often in Reformed theology. People do that. And here's the reality. There wouldn't be a Reformation if they didn't say, wait a second, these traditions that are going on here, selling of indulgences and not understanding that our salvation is by grace in, in Jesus Christ, it's by faith alone and grace alone in Christ alone. If they didn't come to re-understand that in light of the tradition and say, wait a second, we've got a problem here. We wouldn't have a reformation. We wouldn't have reformed theology. And so we need to always come back to the book, not simply to another proof text. When we do this, We can make our tradition a litmus test for the Bible. And then we make the Bible conform to our preconceived notions of what it must say. Last thing here today. Understanding progressive revelation. We need to understand progressive revelation. What do I mean by that? It's simply this. God didn't tell us everything He wanted us to know about him all at once. Amen. He didn't just lay it all out there. The Bible could have been a very short book in some ways. Just lay it out. God just tell us exactly what we need to know. And we've got that and we'll go with that. That's not the way God did it. (laughs) He gave us narrative stories of a crazy family starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the stuff that goes on in this family and all that happens through Moses and the people of God, the people of Israel over the years, the monarchy. He gives us all this history. He gives us poems and poetry through Psalms and through Job. He gives us Proverbs. He gives us all this different type of literature that we've got to work through and figure out. But over time, he reveals himself perfectly and fully in Jesus Christ. I love the book of Galatians in chapter four, where it says, at just the right time, at just the right time, God revealed Jesus Christ. 
Well, why wasn't the right time thousands of years earlier? I'll tell you why. I have no idea. God knows. God knows just the right time. And he reveals Jesus. He unfolds the truth of himself in such a way that we're finally able to grasp it. Because God's word is so powerful and the revelation of his very character, we shouldn't expect, even as we look, sometimes here's what we do. We look at the New Testament and say, man, I wish our church could be like the New Testament church. That that church was powerful. Then we look at Acts chapter 2 and we see that the people are praying and the people are fellowshipping and the people are giving and no one's in need. And we say, yeah, that's what I want. What a powerful church. The New Testament church. Keep reading the New Testament, y'all. By the time you get to Acts chapter 6, this generous Fellowshipping people is fighting back and forth. You're taking care of those widows, but not our widows. And there's a fight going on and we got to figure out how to do this thing and read through the rest of that book. It's a hot mess on steroids, brothers and sisters. It's a mess. God's revelation doesn't point us to the culture of the New Testament as if it is some pure and perfect destination. God points us beyond that to the ultimate destination where heaven meets earth as Jesus comes again. His kingdom will come in fullness. That destination has a lot more to do with Genesis 1 and 2 than most everything written in the book after that. It all points to it. But it's all fallen culture starting in Genesis 3. Fallen people, sin. The destination has a lot more in common with Genesis 1 and 2. Even the law of God, God's laws, which often curb evil evil and exploitation, don't always give us a clear picture of God's perfect will. Often his laws are at work to minimize the effects of evil but they don't always overturn wicked human practices. God works with fallen and sinful people and fallen and sinful cultures to begin the process of overturning sin. It doesn't get overturned at once. Let me just use this last example today. You don't find a single verse in scripture that says slavery is evil. It's demonic and it should be stopped right now. How many of you have wished to find that in the Bible? That's not there. In fact, if you read through Paul, he's giving instructions, right? To masters, he's giving instructions to slaves. He's living in the Roman Empire where up to one third of the people in many parts of it are enslaved. 
And by God's grace, what he's writing, if you read it closely, if you understand it rightly, will overturn that institution because he talks of the dignity of each and every person. And it would overturn the whole thing. But the same Paul who writes to masters and to slaves also writes these words in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is the impact of that scripture? He's not denying that there's differences between male and female between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free. But what he is doing is undermining a way of thinking that had taken root, especially among God's people, that grotesquely mischaracterizes the God who is. The morning prayer of an observant Jewish man in that time, every morning, they would wake up and say, I thank God. That I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. What is that affirming? That is affirming that as a Jewish male, I am superior over Gentiles, over women, and over slaves. Through Paul, God's correcting that misunderstanding. How do we know that? Because of what the scripture says. From the very beginning, Genesis 1, God created humankind and he says this, he says it this way, so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every single person made in the image and likeness of God with dignity. People marginalize others, but God dignifies. Amen? Here's the lesson from that scripture. You must understand the big picture of the scripture. If you'll ever really understand the individual parts well. When you parse out just a little section here or there or a piece of a verse or a verse out of its context, you detach it from what God is saying in the whole narrative of his scripture as he shows his his saving purpose. He is running after his people. And when we do that, when we cut it out and just look at that little part, we're almost always going to get it wrong. Think about this. One of the greatest revivals that's ever happened in the United States was the revival that took place as black enslaved people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Often against, most often against the wishes of their masters. How could they do that? The masters are using this book and proclaiming a Christianity that says 
We have a caste system. You're at the bottom of it. I'm at the top of it. You're just where you're supposed to be enslaved. How in the world could these people come to a robust and powerful and life-changing and world-changing faith in Jesus Christ? I'll tell you how they could do that. They saw that God was not the author of their captivity, but God was the one who promised them freedom. They saw in the scriptures that God is the God of the Exodus who brings his chosen people from slavery and into freedom. They saw that the God of the Bible was the one who proclaims liberty to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind. He sets the oppressed free and he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. They saw the wonder of God's love which was fully and perfectly demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? They were moved and they saw that the slave master's creed was not Christian. And it didn't hold true to the Bible no matter how they tried to twist it. They saw beyond a few Verses twisted out of context. And they saw that the Bible said something altogether different. And so this is the lesson for us. We've got to be careful about plucking out proof texts. To prove a doctrine or a point. As those who advocated slavery and even those who still advocate racialized worth and value among people. We don't pluck out a text to prove a point because when we do that, we miss the point of the scriptures. That's why the most important skill you'll ever have in understanding the word of God well is to read it. Get your nose in it. Don't just read a little bit of it. Get in that book. Cry out to God and say, Lord, speak to me. Read it through. It may take you a long time. That's all right. And then when you're done, do it again. Amen. We need to get in that book. Let me put this whole thing together these last two weeks. This was my poor attempt to draw out something that made sense to me, even if it makes no sense to you. Formed by God's love. We're looking at equipping these last two weeks and we're equipped. First of all, those are supposed to be wells there. We have a well of contemplative spirituality, spending time in God's presence, alone, in silence often, in solitude, seeking the face of God. And we're drawing from that water underneath the, the, the land of the eternal and all-powerful love of God. And they have, have another well on the other side, which is reading and studying God's word. Brothers and sisters, we don't just need one of these, we need both. We need to be drawing, and they're both drawing from the same source. They're drawing from the love of God. They're drawing from the wonder and the majesty of our God who chases after us. Contemplative spirituality and reading and study of Scripture are not in competition with one another. They're complementary practices that help to form healthy disciples for Jesus. 
If we don't have both of these at work in our lives, we will be unbalanced disciples. Amen? We want to be balanced. We want to be growing in Christ in a powerful way. One question as I get ready to close for growing disciples who are being equipped. Has your understanding of God changed in the last few years? I'm not talking about who is Jesus. I'm talking about your understanding of the nature and the character of the person of God, of your relationship with him, of his relationship with this world. Has it changed? How about in the last year? And I would just as an exercise encourage you to write out how your understanding of God has changed or deepened. Here's something that I I believe. If it hasn't changed then you're not growing. It's not okay to be in the same place a year or five years or ten years from now and your understanding of God's love hasn't deepened, hasn't widened. Your love and your ability to love has not changed. That is the work of God through understanding His Word and spending time in His presence had some resources I was going to show, but we'll, we'll put some resources online for you this week um, for both reading and studying and understanding the word better and contemplative spirituality. My prayer is that as a church, we take this mission statement seriously. Are you being equipped? Growing in your ability to know God and walk with Him in a way that gives glory, honor, and praise to His name. Let me pray. Father God, I do thank You today that You are gracious, that You are loving. Lord, I thank You that You never leave us or forsake us. But Lord, you keep coming after us. Lord, we don't deserve it. (laughs) This kind of love is so much greater than we could have asked or imagined. And yet it's there for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen each one of your people. Equip us to give glory, honor, and praise to your name and your name alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship. Our heart's response to that word is uh, really a, a revelation and a declaration of how God has revealed himself to each of us. And wherever we are, all together, we form his people so all the earth will sing his praise. And together we'll declare that he is a great God. Great are you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.
will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. changed the course of my life forever. I was going to be an architect. I was going to go to Clemson University. And that day I was walking home. I only It was only a block away to my house from the church. It took me forever to get home. And I'm like, I think I want to be a pastor. Nothing against architects, Victor. Where are you? Nothing against architects. But the Lord changed my life. That's what he invites you today. He Open up the word and, and Lord, speak to me. And if it confuses you, talk to somebody. Like, this just doesn't make any sense to me. The Lord wants to speak to you directly, and he wants to change your life forever. Amen? Receive the blessing of God. The Lord bless you and, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all of God's children said, Amen.
We're having a fellowship time. We have some Panera bread. We have some coffee. Uh, Nancy Lee's going to be that, down there talking about young lives. Come on down, spend some time. Thank you for joining us online. God bless you this day. <laughs>